Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Maggie Solberg. Maggie is Assistant Professor of Medieval Literature and Culture in the English Department at Bowdoin College and is the author of the new book, Virgin Whore. We spoke to Maggie about the surprising ways the Virgin Mary was depicted in late English medieval literature, how our culture's definition of virginity has changed since that time, and the funny, comic, and trickster side of Mary that is now hidden in our modern representation of the Madonna. Hello, Maggie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, I have in front of me your new book, Virgin Whore, just been published. Um, striking cover and a very, um, very interesting topic that people may not have thought of. Uh, and it might be very controversial for some people. Um, so, you know, it's about the Virgin Mary. And most people today, when they think of the Virgin Mary, they think, hey, it says she, the, the name itself proclaims she's a virgin. How is that controversial? Your research shows that, surprisingly, this was not the case in the Middle Ages. How has the definition of virginity changed since those times? Right. Okay, thanks for that question. Uh, so it's my argument that our sense of the word virginity is much too limited for the power that Mary had in late medieval English culture. For us, a virgin is defined by what she does not do, what she has not done, what she cannot do. And I would say there was nothing that the medieval virgin could not do. <laughs> she could have it all. She did have it all. She was above the rules, beyond the rules. They did not apply to her. So our idea that the Virgin Mary would have to be chaste, silent, and obedient, she didn't. She was paradoxical. And we're used to the concept that she is a virgin and a mother. And obviously that's a paradox. And the theology is that she makes the impossible possible, that God makes the impossible possible in her. But I would say that in late medieval culture, the paradox was bigger. It was more flexible. It was more powerful. And she could even be virgin and whore. She could take a stricter opposition and embody both. But she, I wouldn't want to give the impression that I'm arguing that she was not conceived of as being a virgin. I would say that no matter what they said she did, or what they said she was, or what jokes they told about her, or how they chose to represent her, she was always going to be a perfect virgin. So in that sense, virgin means I can do what I want, and I'm always perfect, I'm always right. It's her power. That's cool, I like that, I like that. Yeah. Reading in your introduction, you had a, a phrase that, that um, speaks to this. You said, contrary to the pull of empiricist and fundamentalist habits of modern thought, Mary's purity functions in accordance with the law of magic and metaphor. Could you yeah. explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think that we would tend to think of virginity um, in empirical terms, in real terms. So if a woman has not had sex, then she is a virgin. Whereas there are all these medieval legends about holy harlots is what Ruth Karras calls them. She's written a great study of these holy harlots and women who had their virginity magically restored to them through the power of their faith. And I would argue that Mary is the prime example of a holy harlot where no matter, uh, it's not so much that she has her virginity restored to her in some of the legends, but the legends seem to imply no matter what this woman did, 
she had so much power and favor with God that the rules are remade specifically for her. She's exempt. She's above it. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's cool. So, so tell me some of the stories within your book that illustrate this. What were some of the, there's, there's countless stories, but what were some of the, the major ones that really stand out for you that exemplify this? So the texts that I study and that are the subject of the book are these late medieval vernacular plays, plays that were written in English and performed in English. And there were so many of these plays in late medieval Europe. Every town, every village put on its own version of Christianity. These plays were produced by the whole community, performed by the whole community. So they're a really interesting database of culture because they weren't made by monks, they weren't made by knights, they weren't made by courtiers, they were made by everybody. So you find a lot of interesting things in there that you don't necessarily find everywhere else. So each play from each town, from each village, they're all a little bit different and they all have their own take on the Bible. And I studied this one particular manuscript from one particular area of England. And this play is so devoted to the Virgin Mary and it tells the entire uh, story of Christianity kind of from her perspective with her as the star. And it's a very funny series of plays, a very obscene series of plays. And they just have their own little take on everything that the Virgin Mary did in the Bible and did in Apocrypha and did in the doctrines and dogmas of Christianity. So they'll add all these stories that we no longer tell. So at the nativity of Jesus, uh, there are two midwives who insist on giving the Virgin Mary a gynecological examination right after she's given birth. And uh, one of their hands pops off when she <laughs> touches the Virgin Mary, her hand pops off and then it has to be restored. And she's very rude to the Virgin Mary and the Virgin Mary triumphs over her. Or Joseph is always messing with the Virgin Mary, calling her horrible names, threatening to have her killed and she will have angels descend from heaven and show him who's boss and what's what. And he gets down on the floor and kisses her feet. She'll be put on trial by the villagers for being an adulteress and a whore. And she'll show them all who's boss and have all these miracles descend from heaven to prove that she's the best and that she's always right. So on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. Funny. So you mentioned funny. Um, you say that you know, very few scholars or, or uh, Christians think of Mary as a trickster or a comedian. Tell us some of the things, that, you know, why has this been lost? What are some of the stories that, that show her comic side? You mentioned the one there. Right, so um, there's a really great book by Adrian Boyerin that collects a lot of really funny miracles of the Virgin. And these are pretty classic medieval legends, uh, popular stories that were passed around where she fights with Satan. And on the cover of Adrian Boyerin's book, she's wrestling with Satan and she's got this big hairy demon by the horns. She's kicking his ass. And that's a common medieval image, these kind of fisticuffs where Mary gets engaged in slapstick comedy with Satan, who is her opposite number. And she always wins, of course, uh, and she cheats. So there will be some images where there are the scales of justice with Mary on one side and Satan on the other. And Satan is cheating on his end by pulling the soul down to hell. And Mary is cheating on her end by dropping her rosary in the other scale to make it lift up high. So they're both tricksters and they fight against each other. And in all those stories, Mary is a very funny figure, but she's also funny, I would argue, in the Bible. And in medieval culture, the Bible is so um, 
integrated into every aspect of life. It's also integrated into comedy. And they have a funny take on all these moments from the Bible that I think we might not read as being funny anymore. So, for example, when Jesus, as a small child, goes to the temple and Mary and Joseph have to go find him, in the end town place that I study, when Mary gets to the temple, she chastises Jesus. In the Bible, Jesus says to her, I was about my father's business. You need to shut it down. And he, he is the boss. In the end town plays, Mary comes back at him with, no, you really worried me. You worried your father. And she gives him this whole rant. And then he completely backs down and says, I'm so sorry, mother. You're in charge of everything. We all apologize to you. She really has this enormous power. And she's always scolding him and embarrassing him and bossing him around. And that's in the Gospels. But in these plays, it gets exaggerated. Wow, wow. So that's a, that's a, that's a question I had is that, so you're looking at uh, these medieval texts, in particularly in England. Do these characteristics of Mary, uh, is there, is there ev ev evidence of this in other cultures and other times or, or even in the original uh, biblical text and, and were, they, were they erased or, or you know, where, where do they come from, these, these attributes of, of Mary that, that were kind of censored over time? Right, I think they are inherent in the Gospels. I think they're inherent in the New Testament. And I think that in the Middle Ages, there was an aptitude, there was a cultural aptitude for this funniness. And it really had its heyday. <laughs> Christianity was very funny in the Middle Ages. We all kind of know that, and it lasts in our culture. We'll see it in Catholic festivals that last through to the present day, like Mardi Gras. Yeah. There's a festive, um, there's a festive mood to Christianity that you see in the Middle Ages. It's what the Puritans were running away from when they founded America was this crazy party that was going on in medieval Europe, this raucous, festive, obscene Christianity that they found deeply offensive. And they won, historically speaking, that version of Christianity, the reformed version of Christianity has become the norm. And this raucous medieval version, we've forgotten many of its best jokes. And its jokes have become insults. It's one of the arguments that I make is these jokes always had the capacity to be insulting, but they also had theological resonance that could make Christians find them uh, redemptive, find them beautiful. So the idea that maybe God was in love with the Virgin Mary, couldn't say no to her, and so would save the souls of sinners who deserve to go to hell because she would ask him. That sounded funny and nice in a late medieval cultural context. Not to everyone, but to many sinners, that sounded like great news, sounded wonderful, yeah. sounded hilarious and wonderful. Puritans did not like that narrative. They did not find it funny. Well, they found it funny in a very dark, angry, misogynistic way, with Mary being this uh, upstart idol who's threatening the authority of their God. And it became a much darker, less playful, less redemptive joke. And you still see it today in insults against Christianity. There will still sometimes be these comments about the Virgin Mary, these insults about the Virgin Mary built into anti-Catholic rhetoric that you might find in the dark corners of the internet. You'll see it in stand-up comedy. You'll see it in obscene jokes. There's an episode of South Park that comes to mind. And you'll see it in avant-garde art that uh, often causes a big stir in the press. But you don't see it in Christian devotion in the way you would have in the late Middle Ages. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, you mentioned avant-garde art in, uh, in, in your book. You, you list uh, um, several artists that have, that have made what you argue is iconography, 
of of uh, Mother Mary, and yet they're so obscene in the eyes of modern uh, Catholics that they that they are attacked. And yet, right. when you when you ask when you look into these artists, and they're they're they love the Virgin Mary. They're they're celebrating the Virgin Mary through their own way, but that the modern Catholicism can't handle that that version. Right. Yeah, and my primary example is Chris Ophelia's painting of the Holy Virgin Mary that caused such a stir when it did its international tour. And for Ophelia, who was raised Catholic, it's a devotional representation of the Virgin that uses many uh, media to get that across, like glitter, but also elephant dung and also pornographic cutouts. It did not go over well with Giuliani, who tried to defund and evict the Brooklyn Museum of Art I think this was in 1999 or 2000. Uh, so there's that kind of cultural war that happens now over this kind of representation of the Virgin Mary, where to some it registers as devotional. That's a rare position now. It tends to be read as an insult, as an insult against faith, as an attempt to break an image, as iconoclasm rather than as iconography. Yeah, yeah. So what, what's what been lost in this transition? Obviously, I mean, this. This sounds so much more, um, I mean, I, I, it's, I shouldn't make these judgment calls, but it's, it sounds, Mary sounds more human, uh, mm. sounds more real, sounds more powerful uh, in these medieval traditions. What, what, it, what, is, what have we lost in our modern culture from this? Um, and also, what have, how have we narrowed down the, the view of women within Catholicism, whereas we have a very powerful Mary here, and it feels like now the modern view is, is these dichotomies of virgin horror and, and, and real, a lot of judgment, and the judgment doesn't seem to be there in the Middle, middle Ages. What, what have we lost? Yeah, I think I would argue that that judgment has always been there. It's just that in the late medieval context, you have a both and instead of an either or. Okay. You have more possibilities when it comes to the meaning of the Virgin Mary. We have fewer now. We have been limited. We've been reduced. Uh, so what's lost? Um, I think I was most interested in uh, a feminist perspective on that question. So second wave and first wave feminism, it's kind of a tenet. It's an assumption that the Virgin Mary is not for us, that she is a tool of the patriarchy and she cannot be redeemed. And she's the most famous woman in human history, but she's been uh, alienated from feminist scholarship by this assumption that she has nothing to tell us or to teach us because her meaning is so essentially patriarchal. And I hope what I have demonstrated is that that's not the case, that if we go back to earlier cultural readings of the Virgin Mary, she doesn't necessarily mean one thing or another. She means she has, she's much more meaningful than we have given her credit for being. So I hope that that will open her up to new feminist scholarship. It's exciting. It's exciting. You've, you've opened up a, a huge door and um, where, where do you see uh, your work and the impact of your work, uh, you know, in the next 10 years? I mean, that you've, op you've opened up, this new research and, and is there a possibility that this um, scholarship can have an impact on modern Catholicism? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a huge question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's unusual for an academic book to have that kind of reach. Mm -hmm. 
well, fingers crossed, we can hope. Uh, and I don't know how it would be taken by a devotional community. That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think that for me, I come from the study of late medieval drama, which is a pretty small field. Early English drama studies has, has, has been a small field uh, for quite some time. The plays that we read haven't been appreciated as they should have been. They haven't been as much part of the literary canon as we want them to be. So my primary goal was to open these texts up to new readers and to new readings because I think they're fantastic. When I read them as an undergraduate, they blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And I have been wanting to share them with people since then. Nice. So I would really recommend everybody go out and read some late medieval drama. Excellent, excellent. Well, you've definitely inspired me. This is, this is an incredible work. Um, any, any last thoughts that you have or anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I could uh, say something about the cover. So yeah. yeah, that image on the cover, it's particularly appropriate because according to legend, that is Agnes Sorel, who was the teenage mistress of the King of France. So when he commissioned this image of the Virgin Mary, he wanted his beautiful young mistress to represent her. And that to me <laughs> is perfect for this book. And it uh, is, is this idea that as a devoted Christian king, if you wanted to create a beautiful image of the Virgin Mary, you would get the hot young thing you were sleeping with, that that idea would make sense to you. Interesting. Wow, wow. So many revelations in this book. This is fantastic. I encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to go out and buy Virgin Horror by Maggie. Solberg. Thank you so much for joining us, Maggie. Thank you. That was Maggie Solberg, author of Virgin Horror. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Maggie's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.